Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. Today, I sit down with Lane and Alex from the Ethereum Foundation to talk about everything that is eWASM. Original motivations, assumptions, implementation details, you name it, we talk about it. Welcome, Lane and Alex. Uh, why don't we kick this episode off with uh, some short introductions from yourselves? Uh, Lane, maybe you can go first. Hi, yeah, great. Thanks for um, having me. I'm pretty excited to be a part of this. Um, so my name is Lane Reddig, and um, I am a core developer here with Alex on the eWASM team. What else can I say? I also run a um, co-working space in a community in New York called Crypto NYC. So um, interested in community building and some topics like governance as well as eWASM. Yeah, my name is... Um Alex Berksassi, or perhaps more shorter, the nickname would be Exic, and that's probably how most of the people know me. I've been working on a couple of Ethereum-related projects for the last, say, two years. One of them is Solidity, um, the compiler itself and the language design. And I would say it was like half of my time, and the second half was spent on eWASM. I mean, uh, I guess that's the, the gist of it. How did you guys get involved in blockchain and all, and... and what was your path into the Ethereum Foundation? Let's do this chronologically. You came in first, so you go first, Alex. <laughs> I actually think the first time I heard about Bitcoin uh, was probably 2009. A couple of friends were really into it, and they told me that you should you should try this software on your computer because it's fun. I had a Mac at that time and it didn't work. Um, I couldn't compile it. Um, so it was a couple of years later when I started to actually do anything with Bitcoin. I was involved with a couple of startups in the Bitcoin space. Um, and then I went to a hackathon 2015 where I had to learn Ethereum. And I wanted to, it was quite early, so I wanted to do a DAP. I don't even remember what it was. I just ran into issues. Um, so I started to do the DAP in Solidity and JavaScript. Um, so it had to be like a full UI. Um, and none of any of those didn't work. Um, so I started report issues to Solidity um, and then issues to Ethereum.js. Um, but there weren't enough people to fix or take any of those issues up. So I started to do it myself and I just uh, stayed. So I'm, I'm pretty new. I'm much newer to the ecosystem than Alex is, although I have to say in Bitcoin years or in Ethereum years, it feels like it's been a lifetime already. So much has happened the past few months. I had a career, a previous life, uh, basically working for a financial company. So on Wall Street as a programmer, I changed gears, went to business school. So left that career and uh, became an entrepreneur. And during business school, I founded a healthcare technology startup and ran that company for a few years. And um, we sold that company in 2016. And then after that, I decided to take some time off, um, take a sabbatical, kind of travel a bit, you know, the meditation, kind of the whole, the whole midlife, quarter life, third life crisis, whatever it is. And um, so this was kind of 2016 into, into last year now. And of course, I had sort of heard about Bitcoin and read about it, but I had not been hands-on with it at all. And I don't know, Bitcoin never really kind of clicked for me. But um, in 2016, um, early 2017 now, last year, I was at a conference in Europe, actually, which was not sort of a blockchain or Ethereum-focused conference. It was a tech conference in Estonia, actually. 
And I met a number of people there who were building some pretty exciting things on Ethereum. And I'd heard of Ethereum as well, but again, it hadn't sort of, it hadn't clicked for me. And I kind of, I had this aha moment and it just sort of registered for me what a big deal smart contracts are and, and how they're going to change the world and how if um, there are all these brilliant hackers from places like Ukraine and Russia and Estonia who are working on these things now, like, wow, this is something I really want to learn about. So I kind of began my, my own journey down the rabbit hole around that time early last year. And I think the next big step for me, um, so I, I sort of ended my sabbatical early, went home to kind of study full time and figure out what the heck is this stuff. Um, rolled up my sleeves, began working on a couple of random projects, but um, really it was uh, it was DevCon last year. So in October of last year, I went down to Cancun to join DevCon as a volunteer, actually, and uh, it was through that that I met a number of Ethereum Foundation folks, and um, yeah, went went fully down the Ethereum rabbit hole and kind of um, you know helped out on a few projects and with a few teams over the following months, and then finally met Alex and his team um, actually January I think so quite recently. And joined um, them for a sprint, and then for another sprint, um, and it's been it's been pretty exciting. I'm really excited about the Evasm project in particular. So that brings us uh, very naturally to what we're here to talk about today, which is Evasm. I've talked a little bit about Evasm or WebAssembly in general on this podcast before, but I think something that isn't covered very well is like exactly what it is and and why it is. Like, what's the original motivation for it? Um, like what's the stages of it? How will it be used? Like how does the foundation see this work, etc.? So maybe we can start at like what's the original motivation? Like what made the foundation want to look at Wasm at all? Well, it started out as, as a research project, uh, like early 2016. I guess it had different motivations. Um, at that point, probably one of the motivations was um, look at some kind of what kind of scaling options would there be. And of course, other scaling options were explored, but this was just a, a small side project of a few people. And WebAssembly wasn't even final at that point. Um, but at the same time, these people, and by that I mean uh, the Ethereum.js team of only two people, we weren't, maybe we weren't fully happy with how the EVM works. Um, so we also tried to look for a replacement. Um, so there could be like multiple ways you could keep iterating on EVM and try to fix things you believe don't work too well in the EVM. But one of the main things in the EVM is it's 256-bit based, which I guess our little team didn't really believe in. Uh, we thought it should be like more similar to a regular computer. And regular CPUs would be 32 or 64-bit, like all the operations would operate on, on that kind of size. And changing the EVM to be 64-bit seemed to be quite a big challenge because it's like a crucial change to EVM. Um, so we started to look at other options. Another motivation there while looking at options was to how could we support more languages? Because at that point, at that point actually we had Solidity, Serpent, and I think LLL was still around. And before that maybe, I would say nobody really heard about this who joined in the last few years. And there was another language called Mutant uh, with a go like syntax. But even at that point it was gone. And we have seen that not many languages would be there, not the, like the tooling infrastructure and, and frameworks, they were quite behind. Um, so another motivation was to, how could we enable more, more languages? And we looked at multiple VMs um, at that point, multiple instruction sets. I think even on the repo, there is a document which explains the pros and cons of all these, which we have looked at. I'm not sure if I can remember all of them, but definitely Java, uh, the JVM. Uh, CLR uh, from Microsoft, 
uh, there was risk, risk five WebAssembly. Maybe I've missed something, but we looked at all of these and the pros and cons. If I can find the document later, I can link it in the show notes and uh, people can go uh, check out. That sounds a super valuable resource. I mean, we're still, I guess we're deciding on WebAssembly at this point, uh, but it might be still a valuable document to challenge those reasons. Uh, and maybe someone will find another instruction set to be much more suitable for blockchains. Um, but in the end, we did choose WebAssembly for certain reasons. And we started to prototype it. And the first motivation was to make it compatible with EVM. And by compatibility here, I mean that you could have it as a drop-in replacement. So like one way is it would be a drop-in replacement. Uh, you would replace the virtual machine and the client entirely to WebAssembly. And you would have this translation layer, which could translate EVM bytecode to WebAssembly. So you would have uh, two options uh, by default. You could run the existing contracts, or you could compile uh, other languages to this WebAssembly bytecode and run them. And that's, that's how we started. And the two artifacts out of that uh, was the JavaScript prototype for the client and this project called EVM to Watson. You touched on sort of the fundamental there, which is EVM is 256 bits. A normal computer is 32 or 64. So what that really means, I guess, is that when you're doing 256-bit operations, like adding two numbers together, this actually needs to be translated to multiple by code operations on a normal CPU because you need to break those 256 bits down into 64-bit constituents, uh, basically do big int math on them. And, and all of this stuff is a lot more expensive than simply one operation to the CPU adding two 64-bit numbers. Obviously, so this has a huge impact on math, uh, like if you're actually doing heavy computation and you're doing like crypt cryptography or something like that. But does it really have that much of a performance impact if you're like just writing a normal contract to, of like business logic and you're not doing much else? That's actually quite a good question. And it even recently came up as in the last couple of days. Um, there, there was a, so for, I guess every, every listener here have heard about the yellow paper. And the yellow paper would be one of the specifications of Ethereum, and more specifically, the, the virtual machine and the instruction set. And as far as I know, it's not fully clear about like the value ranges for certain things. Uh, and one of those is the actual uh, the value of Ether to be transferred uh, in certain transactions, or the value of gas uh, limits, or gas prices, uh, and anything like that. It, it kind of is... Um, implicit by the stack items to being 256-bit wide. Um, but the actual physical encoding on the network between the nodes would be RLP, which is a recursive flexible encoding, so there's no limit there. And basically, and the, all the contracts, like the majority of contracts, would deal with balances. And some other set of contracts would deal maybe with hashes. Uh, but there's no reason to add hashes together. So if you just look at balances, those would be like 256-bit additions, uh, multiplications, or whatever you do. Uh, in many cases, you don't even need that many bits. Like As an example, what we have found is 128 bits would be probably sufficient just to deal with Ether uh, values and having uh, 18 decimal points. And that, that already is something uh, which goes into a loss because you don't need to do those computations. Uh, there's no reason for it because it will never exceeded. And even the 128-bit would mean that uh, you would have all Ether ever possible in existence 
in a single calculation, which is probably really very unlikely. Probably regular transactions for any kind of computation you do should really fit into 64 bits, but you're doing four times as much uh, for anything. And that sounds kind of wasteful. Right, and for example, you know, public keys, addresses are longer than that, but we're not performing arithmetic on them either. So I think that that's, um, we don't have to deal with the, you know, breaking it apart and doing the math on it, like you were saying we'd have to do. One thing that I think a lot about, so it's from someone who works on a client and deals with performance issues all day, there may not be all that much gain in any one particular uh, smart contract switching to Wasm from like their point of view of that individual contract. But uh, as, as a full node, like I'm running all transactions on all contracts all the time. And when I'm syncing, I'm running all transactions ever. Syncing is mainly bound by I.O., not by computation, by CPU. But even like a small reduction in CPU usage greatly helps with actually syncing your node and, and doing things quickly as a full node. Going back a little bit to the things you were saying of, of like the original motivations, something that I believe very strongly in is uh, opening up the tool chain to m- more things. So there's an argument to be made for maybe we can utilize tools to run wasm like that will can we can get a, a performant vm from google or firefox or something um but there's ar- arguments for and against that but even without that i think there's very many strong arguments that you know it's easy to find a language of your choice that compiles to WebAssembly. Like at Parity, we like Rust, so we've written a Rust library to compile Rust to WebAssembly and use that for smart contracts. But there's no reason you couldn't use TypeScript or C or whatever else that compiles to WebAssembly. Um, but you not only get that, but like you get LLVM uh, as sort of its intermediate representation and all the analysis tools that exist around that. We're writing a lot of these tools now for EVM, where you know if we'd had Wasm from day one, then you know, all, a lot of those tools would have already existed. Going back a little bit to what is WebAssembly, you know, what does it actually mean for you guys who are concretely working on this? Like, are you writing a VM? Uh, like, what is what is that you're actually working on? We actually came up with um, some kind of uh, naming proposal because this term of VM became rather confusing because we had probably like four different things which we called, we would call a VM, and there was no way to understand what the, the other person is talking about. So we actually started to split this up, and one of the terms we have, um, and probably it wasn't us coining the term, but we just started to use this term, the execution engine. Uh, it would be the piece of code which understands WebAssembly and can run WebAssembly, execute WebAssembly. And one interesting part of WebAssembly is, which would be very different from the EVM, um, in a WebAssembly uh, bytecode can import uh, external functions and can execute those functions. And whenever control is given over to those external functions, um, those can be implemented in the, the host language. With this way, a lot of things can be abstracted. And basically, the execution engine does all of this. And in the VM, which would be uh, the execution engine and our additions, like our functions we give to the bytecode. And that's what we call the VM at the moment. Uh, and this goes into the client. Uh, and between the, the VM and the client, there's a layer connecting like the data acquisition and storage functions, which basically here mean uh, the way to interact with the blockchain. So I guess this, this maybe sets the, the scene to what we do, which would mean that we don't want to touch the execution engine. 
Um, we are not in the business of writing an execution engine. And we're not even in the business of designing an instruction set. Uh, we have kind of, if you, if you would say so, we kind of outsourced it to this WebAssembly working group. Uh, compared to how the EVM works is in EVM, we cannot really outsource anything. Any, everyone and anyone involved with Ethereum and the ecosystem has to contribute to the EVM. They have to contribute to uh, designing how it should work. And then they have to contribute to implementing EVM execution engines and the VMs and the actual clients. And they also have to do all the, the tool chain, the tooling, the languages. So that's a lot of, lot of things to do. So that would be one of the strong points uh, with WebAssembly that we have outsourced this, this core element uh, to a much larger group of people. So with that, obviously, comes the problem of if you've outsourced, particularly the execution engine, you're now dealing with an execution engine that isn't optimized for blockchain. And I know, like, Greg Colvin comes and bothers people every once in a while saying, we can't trust Google, we can't trust Firefox, we can't trust these guys to actually build something that's... It's, it's much appreciated. You know, all kind of input is, is really appreciated. Yeah. Like, what we at Parity have done is uh, build uh, an execution engine, an interpreter, um, that is currently very slow uh, because it's built with sort of a security-first mindset of correctness and traceability and debuggability and everything. And... Basically, then we're saying we're outsourcing the instruction sets because there are other people, like if we utilize the whole world to come up with a good instruction set, it's more likely they'll be good than if a small group of people is working on it. And I don't think, I've never really heard a good argument for why a particular instruction set would be good or bad for blockchain. Like basically the only requirement necessary from an instruction set is that it's fully deterministic. So... You know, if you remove floating points from WebAssembly, then it matches that requirement. On the uh, execution layer, you just need to make sure that all the implementations match each other exactly. And that may or may not be hard, like if you're using like Firefox's engine or something. But then, like you said, like outside of this, you still get all of the other benefits, like all of the other tooling, everything else that exists for WebAssembly, and you still can utilize everything from this wider community. So what would, uh, if I can ask back, what would be the, the key requirements for an instruction set to be blockchain compatible? Or how do, you, how do you say that something is blockchain compatible? Yeah, exactly. And to me, the only thing is that it has to be fully de deterministic. That makes it blockchain compatible, in my opinion. Now, Alex, you said a moment ago that way back when you guys were beginning this project, you looked at other instruction sets and you chose Wasm. So I don't know if you can speak any more specifically to that. What was it about Wasm that was so attractive? Was it maybe it wasn't the instruction set; it was the other stuff, the tooling and you know the support. There were a couple of different reasons. One of them actually, because we started rather early in the process of of finalizing WebAssembly. Uh, so for those who don't really know, WebAssembly is uh, developed uh, or specified by a W3C working group, which is open to be joined. And uh, I think last we checked was the membership count was roughly six to eight hundred. Uh, and all the major uh, companies involved with compile, well, okay, I guess compilers and browsers were members of it. Uh, so at least they had an option to, to voice their opinions. But it also meant that we also had the same option. Um, so when we started to, to look into it, we were kind of confident if we run into something which would be a blocker, uh, there would be a way to discuss it uh, with the working group. I think we found a couple of tiny issues, but we haven't really found anything blocking but even with those tiny issues, we were able to open. So even though it's a W3C working group, which has the own way of, of operating, 
the majority of the discussions were happening on a GitHub repository, the GitHub slash WebAssembly slash design repository. So we opened a couple of issues there. And really quickly, we got our answers, whether we should do it that way, or does it make sense, or whether they need to fix anything. I think that was a really good point, because it, it could reassure us that if we did run into something, uh, that could be fixed. And obviously, another really beneficial point was that at that point, and I think still today, we had a hope that like clients could really become ubiquitous. And say, with WebAssembly being present in all the browsers, the like client uh, would only need to implement a couple of hundred lines of code in JavaScript. And you could write pretty much everything else in something which complies to WebAssembly. And you could basically run a like client on any kind of device. That's actually something that we're working on at Parity as well, is compiling the entire Parity like client to WebAssembly. So you can just embed a whole like client in a browser extension or something. Oh, nice. I'm pretty excited about the possibility of these things running on mobile devices. I know we're not there yet. I know that Status and some other teams are working on it. But uh, I think when we're, we have a web uh, stack, I think it opens up some possibilities. Yeah. I mean, for, for mobile, we already compile Parity to mobile. So you can run Parity on a phone. Running it like completely ubiqu ubiquitously in all browsers and everything. I, that's, I mean, imagine having the user experience of MetaMask without having to rely on a trusted party. Like, that would be amazing. <laughs> Can I ask a question as well? So this is actually not something I know a lot about, but I suspect you guys will know more about it than I do. There is an initiative, I think, underway right now to design a virtual machine from scratch for the blockchain, and I think Cardano is using it, right? I can't remember the name of that initiative. Yele? That one. I don't know how to pronounce it. I've seen it written. But so, I don't know. I mean, obviously, we like Wasm and Ewasm a lot. But I mean, that's an interesting approach as well. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? Uh, so I actually, I know some of the people who are working on the Cardano team um, just from my Haskell days because they're all Haskell developers. And uh, they're doing a lot of cool stuff. And like the programming language is like they have one of my favorite people ever, Phil Wadler, and like highly respected programming language theorist working on their smart contract programming language i think it'll be super cool but it's it's going back to the same thing like if you're designing something new from scratch you're starting this from day one where with WebAssembly you have 15 years of tooling in place it'll be cool it might be a lot better but it'll be 15 years before they're where we are today with WebAssembly. yeah and i guess this goes back to what you said before how much better can a virtual machine be than another virtual machine. I mean, yeah. you know, if we have an instruction set that lets us do all the things we need to do, which I think we do have in, in Wasm, right? Yeah. So, I mean, going back a little bit to uh, JVM and, and CLR, and I've not worked on either of those. I've talked to some JVM people about, like, the problems they have. And just speaking from the experience of implementing an interpreter for a WebAssembly, it's relatively easy. Like, it's something that we could do in a couple of months. We could not in a million years <laughs> write a JVM implementation or a CLR implementation. Like They're massively more complex than what WebAssembly is. And maybe the, not as deterministic? I'm not sure. It, that, that's the thing. Like right. to, to be able to remove the non-deterministic parts uh, would be incredibly hard. Right. Um, like I would say not impossible. Whereas with WebAssembly, it, it's relatively easy. So... That simplicity, if we're going to name things that are suitable for a blockchain, simplicity always helps security. Uh, so I think that's a, that is actually a priority in, in selecting anything. I think this might be a great place to mention um, Everett's work with KEVM and KWASM. Yeah, I, I, was, I was going to, I think I have maybe a tiny bit different opinion on, on the other languages uh, we talked like briefly. 
Um, but I also wanted to to say add something to what you said last. Compared to, to WebAssembly and, and CLR uh, and Java, I think one thing people may not realize, uh, so, so the JVM and CLR would be much higher level compared to WebAssembly. Um, and I, I think maybe people would have the assumptions because WebAssembly has web in its name and it was really connected to browsers and JavaScript. There probably it's something which is related to JavaScript and would be some semi-high level thing. Um, but actually it's quite the opposite. Um, cause it's, it's designed to be an instruction set which can be easily compiled to a native, uh, instruction set. And the majority of native, uh, the majority of CPUs today would be Intel x86 or ARM instruction sets. Um, and it was really designed to be effectively compiled from WebAssembly to those native instruction sets. And that means it, it, it really tried to avoid any, anything which wouldn't be necessary regarding high-level bindings. So it really has just a thin layer of high-level bindings. And pretty much, um, I would say, maybe more than 90% of the instruction set would be really just specific to, to basic uh, arithmetic logic, etc. instructions. Um, and it was also, at the same time, designed to be extensible. Um, this might be really kind of too technical, but um, say anyone who is familiar with EVM, EVM is just a stream of opcodes. You can just start executing it. You don't need to, to understand anything else. You just need to understand the instructions. Compared to that, WebAssembly, uh, WebAssembly bytecode or WebAssembly file, uh, I would say is a container. It has a header, it has a couple of sections, and eventually it also has bytecode. But it is way more structured. And, and this container is extensible. It's designed to be extensible. And even so, the WebAssembly version 1.0 was, I think, like mid last year when it was finalized. But we are seeing, because they have, I think, twice a year or maybe three times a year, uh, they have a, a community meeting uh, where proposals can be discussed. And a couple of proposals are actually being discussed to improve and extend WebAssembly in a backwards compatible manner. So I think that would be a quite big difference to how JV JVM and CLR was designed because it had really different reasons uh, to be designed. I guess I didn't forget the K thing. So I was going to mention there, I wouldn't be an authority to, to talk about this because I don't know that much, but I will try to convey what I understand. So the K framework is a formal verification framework. And we are super lucky that we have one of the authors who worked a lot on KEVM, which is implementing EVM semantics in this K framework. Uh, he's called Everett, and he's also working uh, with the EVASM team. And he is working on implementing WebAssembly semantics in K. And second, when he's done with that, he is looking into implementing EWASM semantics. And this K framework, I think eventually at some point, maybe it's not today, but at some point it will be able to... So I'm not sure which parts are there today, but I think the, the plan would be to, to generate parsers, to generate compilers, to, to basically one would be able to pass a x86 bytecode to this K framework. It could understand it with the x86 semantics, uh, build up its internal representation, verify it, and then it can output, could output WebAssembly. And they designed this, I guess, this new language, uh, this new VM, Yale, uh, as part of K semantics. So I'm not really worried that someone designs an instruction set from scratch, uh, because once we have KWASM, we will be able to compile anything written to this Yale, uh, okay, I'm not sure if I pronounced it correctly, but it's written as Y-E-L-E. -E. So this new instruction set, anything written in it will be possible to be transcompiled to WebAssembly. So I think that's super exciting. Generating compilers is uh, another super exciting thing to me because um, actually 
JIT compilers and ahead of time compilers to go from WebAssembly to native code in that direction um, can actually be quite tricky. Like uh, JIT compiler, which is a just-in-time compiler, there you compile the bytecode to native code as you go along in the program. And this leads to like you can con- like you can mi- maliciously try to construct programs that might um, cause like a quadratic or exponential computation usage trying to compile this piece of code, uh, and um, basically opens up to DDoS attacks or DOS attacks. Yeah, that's what Greg was talking about. <laughs> yeah, uh, but then there's like ahead of time compilers, and they have their own kind of issues because you need to be able to make sure that you know one with 100% security like that the x86 code you generate for this particular linux distribution is the exact same or like produces the exact same result as this native code generated for a 32-bit cpu or for an arm cpu or something else this is actually really hard thing to get right and if you want to do it yourself from scratch you kind of have to go one platform at a time and basically say this platform we are now sure with and everyone else gets the slow interpreter version Uh, but then uh, you run into like can you possibly game this system because some clients are running faster than other clients and like what does the gas cost even mean then a uh, bunch of stuff like this. So it's a, it's a very tricky territory. And if we can actually have a formal verification framework that generates compilers that compiles everything and we don't have to deal with that, uh, it would be amazing. Uh, I don't think we'll be just so lucky, but we'll, we'll see. <laughs> the original motivation, like where we're going with this, where do you guys see that WebAssembly will actually be used? Like, will this be on mainnets next year? Yeah, this is something we've been talking a lot about lately and... Um uh, maybe it's sort of the idea has sort of changed a little bit here, but um, I'll, I'll kind of kick off with my understanding. And Alex, please fill in the gaps and correct me if I get anything wrong. So it's interesting. So if we re- rewind slightly, we used to talk about, or I should say you, because I wasn't part of the project at that time, but sort of Ethereum people used to talk about Ewasm as a scaling solution. And that's kind of not um, the, the conversation we're having right now. And there's a few reasons for that. I think a lot of the um, more experimental kind of scaling-y type stuff is the stuff that Martin took with him and, and, and that became Premia. Uh, is that, am I sort of correct in my understanding about that part? Yeah, yeah. Basically, we um, during that early prototyping process, we ran into a couple of challenges. And if you if you try to keep 100% compatibility with the EVM, you may be restricted in certain things. Right. Uh, and it's possible to do it that way. Right. Um, but if you if you try to get around some of those, and you do it for pretty much everything which is required, like every kind of uh, data retrieval, then you end up with quite a lot of things where you look at it, okay, maybe just taking a step back and maybe why do I want to be compatible with DVM if it, if it makes it so complex? And if you, if you just break away from DVM at that point, um, then you can design a much different system. Um, and that became Primia. It's, it's based on the actual model and it's quite pure. And WebAssembly is, is really, really nicely suited for that kind of model as well. So I'll come back to this in a second because this is really interesting. But just to catch up with kind of um, the current sort of thread within, you know, the Ethereum project. Yeah, so I think the current understanding is that, um, you know, this will become the execution engine for sharding. 
and as we as we all know, you know, sharding is um, a really important initiative right now. It's it's a bit hard to keep up with because it keeps evolving and it's sort of a moving target. But there's there's many phases of it, and it sounds like phase one is going to be about data data availability and and sort of generally these these things called blobs of data. But there won't be an execution engine for phase one. Um, but I think that that's part of the roadmap for phase two, unless it's changed again recently. I heard phase three. Okay, phase yeah, three. So I think later phases as well. So uh, we're talking about anyway. We're talking about next year, best case scenario. So that does kind of leave a bit of an open question here about kind of you know the roadmap for us to get there. But the, I want to circle back to what you said a moment ago, Alex. You were saying you know if you try to keep something perfectly EVM compatible, you know you may begin to um, run up against some limitations. Um, one of the exciting things about sharding is I think I may be borrowing Xiaowei's phrasing from yesterday when she presented on it um, here at EdCon, but she said, you know, each shard is its own universe, and it's a new universe. And that's pretty exciting because we're starting from scratch and we don't have any baggage, so to speak, right? So one um, good Im implication of that for this project is that maybe we don't actually need to be able to run any legacy EVM bytecode because shards will start empty. And if we start as the execution engine for that, right, we're only ever going to be looking at WASM bytecode. But I guess the thing I'm, I'm curious to explore here is um, not that we should try to change the sharding roadmap again, but any of these ideas, the sort of actor model, just as one example, do you think that there could be a place for any of that stuff in sharding, or do you think that it, it will always be EVM compatible? To be honest, I'm not sure who's qualified to answer that, but I'm definitely not qualified, because it would be, it would be someone who understands the roadmap of sharding. We, we did talk a little bit about this at the sharding workshop in Taiwan, and... Um, Basically, there is there is some desire to go to an actor model like thing because uh, as you start like the mental model for sharding is you spawn up a bunch of Ethereum networks and they all share the same security pool, right? Um, and these like exactly like you're saying these shards could all be running EVM, but uh, the the toughest problem in the whole sharding space to solve is cross shard communication. And just to be clear, that's what sets sharding apart from. Plasma or yeah. sort of you know uh, side chains and yeah. things like yeah, and uh, in a cross sharding communication discussion, um, you inevitably start talking about like how do these messages propagate and are they synchronous or asynchronous uh, and what sort of computation model do they follow? And there was a discussion around making it sort of an actor model type thing, but it's really super undefined. Like, we, the thinking is not that progressed. <laughs> I think anything could happen, and I would say it's fully open, because it's really down to the the people implementing it in the clients. And whoever comes in first and, and creates an implementation, like a fully working implementation with at least two different clients, I guess we'll have a good opportunity to, to, to show what could be done. And uh, Maybe many of those ideas would be taken over. Maybe once we fit sort of quote unquote finish eWASM and get it working, we should begin implementing sharding with eWASM. <laughs> Parity deployed its WASM engine to Coban, and the way it's running there is that both the uh, EVM and WASM VM run side by side, and you can communicate between them. And so basically, there's just a bit at the beginning of your contract code that says which VM you want to use. And what happened What happened with legacy contract code after that change? Or They just run on the EVM VM. So they're like in, implicitly assumed to be EVM if they're prior to this block number, because there was nothing else. <laughs> uh, so you, you can like run both in parallel, but, but it's kind of tricky. And because... Coven is a testnet. There's no real value. You can't actually test like all the gas pricing, crypto economics parts of it. 
So there may be problems there in like differing gas costs between different operations, and like, there's many potential exploits. And you know, we hope that if there are exploits, that people find them on Coban. But really, there there are some subtleties in running both. Um, and I think constraining yourself to being EVM compatible in the sense of like compiling EVM or transpiling EVM to Wasm becomes a really tricky road. Like that's a very difficult road to go down. That's a road that, that you've explored, Alex. Uh, maybe you can talk a bit more about like what did that work look like and how much are you constraining the power, quote unquote, of WebAssembly by using EVM semantic? Well, you have the same things. You... Um it's basically just a EVM VM implemented in, in WebAssembly. It would it would be called an ahead of time compiler. So you take EVM bytecode and you generate Wasm bytecode, where you basically just concatenate the the pieces, which would do uh, say 256 bit multiplication, etc. And instead of the like an EVM, you have a stack, uh, and uh, you just map the stack into memory in WebAssembly. And this works really well. And actually, at some point which wasn't recently, we have benchmarked it against um, several uh, EVM implementations, and it performed really well compared to them. I think it was able to beat, uh, beat them in many cases. Uh, there were certain things where uh, it, it could have been improved, but it was performing really well. And, and this, I think this benchmarking was done when it was fully written in an EVM-compatible manner in a synchronous, uh, with using synchronous operations. And the next step from there on, on the way of progressing to the actor model, uh, certain things have been moved to a, a synchronous model. So anything which is touching the state, either uh, reading or writing the state, uh, which not only includes storage, reads, writes, but calling another contract, etc. cetera. Uh, all of those things have been uh, changed to asynchronous uh, methods. And it actually worked. Um, so it's possible to change EVM to WASM to do that. But there's another uh, other problem we ran into which goes back into languages and all this tooling. So even though uh, WebAssembly would open, and probably not just WebAssembly, but another instruction set would open the door for many other languages, which uh, have a much longer history, uh, very likely the domain-specific languages we have so far for Ethereum, they probably are useful for certain things. Probably I'm speaking home here a bit, but uh, I think Solidity and Viper are, are pretty useful. Uh, if you use them properly. But we ran into this issue that if you would like to make, uh, say, any of them compatible with WebAssembly, um, it's not such a big deal if you would like to make it compatible with the synchronous, uh, synchronous eWASN. But making them more compatible with a, a synchronous model or an actor model uh, would require much bigger changes. And if you would like to keep it, uh, keep the language and the compiler to support both the EVM and, and this other kind of VM uh, with an actor model, that probably requires a lot of changes and a lot of resources to enable that. But you could still use EVM to WASM to do that, uh, but it wouldn't be that optimal. These were the issues we ran into. It, it probably is more of an issue of uh, making decision, allocating enough resources, and being brave enough to take this giant leap, because that would be probably such a breaking change that there would be no way going back. Yeah. So once you move over to WebAssembly and an actor model, there wouldn't be anyone maintaining the EVM version of, say, Solidity. What you touch on there is uh, a really interesting topic to me, which is going back to the, we have this theory, this assumption that uh, switching to another instruction set will 
bring in a lot of tooling from from other parts of the world and other communities. But there is still, like, it is still an assumption. We don't actually know if all of these other tools will be very applicable to blockchain. So, like I said, we have a library that lets you write smart contracts in Rust. But the first version of this library that we have is not particularly nice to use. The binaries produced by Rust are, like, generally too large. So there needs to be optimization there. And there's a lot of, like, cruft that comes along with not having a language that is specific for a blockchain. So it's it's not a domain-specific domain language. It's a general-purpose language. To make sure I understand what you're talking about and to put things in sort of concrete terms here, uh, I'm not super familiar with Rust, but in the C world, you'd end up with something like a standard library, you know, stdlib kind of compiled into your binary, and that would include things like, you know, like printing to screen and stuff, and we don't really need that in the blockchain. No. Is that sort of the stuff? No. Yeah, so in Rust, you can uh, exclude all that. So you can start with a blank slate, and if you just compile that with, uh, like, nothing else, it, it literally just outputs nothing. Uh, so, and, and like, the, the very simplest uh, version of, like, a hello world contract that just returns the bytes is is very efficient like cool. that that doesn't return anything more but then you start like adding library constructs and macros and things to make things pleasant to use and write um maybe you actually generics are not are actually good for binary size because uh, it sort of generates code in a good way but uh yeah the, basically once you actually start dealing with higher level concepts you kind of end up ex including more code than you may want to and because you don't have full control over, over the entire compiler stack, uh, you're like, I can't really do anything about this. I have to redesign my library from scratch, uh, which is what we're trying to do now. So we were doing like a second iteration of, of this library and see if we can get to something that's nicely usable and can, can like produces nice code. But at the end of the day, it might be that general purpose languages are not useful for blockchains and it, we should have a domain-specific language. Uh, and, and in that case, you know, what have, what have we gained? <laughs> when you say that they are quite large, well, how big would they be? Uh, so just like my simple uh, demo contract that I showed off at FCC, which is like a donation contract where you can donate some amount to keep track of top donor and, and you can withdraw funds and stuff like that. And uh, that generated a binary that was like 13 kilobytes. <laughs> which is insane compared to like if it was solidity it might it might have been 500 to a thousand bytes so it's like 10 times larger than it should be and this included some like in in binary world there's like on if you're running a mac or linux there's a program called strip that will like take out a bunch of cruft data from your binary that is just used for error reporting basically uh, the same thing, uh, like you can run that on any Rust program and remove a bunch of data because Rust includes a bunch of like debug data, uh, even in like optimized size optimized, uh, you know, release builds. There are there is some amount of cruft data like that, and that was included in the contracts because there is no Wasm strip program, or at least I didn't find one at the time to run on my binary. Uh, so like the, there is still a lot of like little details like this that are kind of unworked out. Actually, I think I found one for. Even written in Rust. Oh, really? Yeah, we used it because um, some of the Ewasm tests are written in the the Ethereum test suite, and there some of them we have actually written in Rust and uh, compiled uh, with the Rust compiler to WebAssembly, and then using this uh, stripping tool. Another thing I wanted to to mention, maybe just it's speaking against WebAssembly, but 
What is the, the limit of code size? What can be deployed to the blockchain? Uh, 24 kilobytes is what it's set to, I think, on mainnet. Yeah, so basically uh, the small donation contract almost used up all of that. Yeah, it's like halfway to the limit. <laughs> oh, just going back to something that you said before, Frederick, um, about you know, maybe we wanted, we actually do want to use these domain-specific languages like Solidity and Viper, and, and maybe the general-purpose languages are not well-suited to the blockchain. I would say you may be right. I would say we don't know the answer to that yet. Um, I think it's an experiment worth running, and I think that it's one of those things that we just won't know, right? If we make these tools available to the world, and who knows, right? Maybe there's a, you know, an order of magnitude more developers who like Rust and C and other languages like that so much that they, they come and join and build this tooling for us so it's i think it's an experiment worth running i'm excited about it yeah so how do you feel about um writing business logic in c and compiling it to WebAssembly? well writing business logic in uh, in c might not be all that desirable but writing it in rust i'd be happy to do <laughs> yeah i'm kind of scared about uh writing it in c i mean i wouldn't write it in c but you know if you open the doors people will be able to yeah i think that that kind of goes hand in hand so uh, on one hand, you have more and better tooling for security analysis. On the other hand, you're opening up to languages like Solidity, in my opinion, is pretty damn hard to write good secure programs in. <laughs> like it's making it a lot harder than it should be. But C certainly would be a lot harder. <laughs> so yeah, we're making it. I don't know. It depends. Like, if you actually cared about security, would you pick C? Or maybe there's like some hardcore security fanatics who, you know, would pick C because they know they have control over everything. Uh, uh, yeah, it, it's. I think it's an interesting question. And um, like, obviously, Parity is betting a lot on uh, being able to use Rust or general purpose languages in general to to do blockchain stuff. Yeah, I, I think it's an assumption that is sort of untested. One of my takeaways from DevCon last year was that there are a lot of really smart people working on a lot of cool languages and DSLs and stuff. I don't know, Bamboo comes to mind, right? I know that's sort of designed for formal verification. I think that's um, Yoichi's project. There's some Rolang projects. So I, I, again, I just think it's super early. I think we'll see great DSLs, and I think it's something that uh, we should promote as more kind of uh, experimentation in this area. Yeah, if you want to be like uh, fully honest, it, it was being said so many times that uh, wasn't will open the door for so many languages. But if you want to be realistic, it's only C, C++, and Rust at the moment, which would be stable. The other thing that I would actually think was appreciated by the community is TypeScript. TypeScript oh, actually yeah. has a WebAssembly compiler as well, and it's, it's like JavaScript-like, and people might actually enjoy using that. But it's, you're back to that, like, it's kind of hard to write secure programs in JavaScript. TypeScript is a little bit better. It has some types, but it's still not like the security language that would come to mind for me if I was writing something safe. I think another question to ask is, will, will uh, WebAssembly be a, a better place to, to bring more people to write domain-specific languages for? Because if they write domain-specific languages for targeting WebAssembly, they're going to have a much bigger, much broader audience. It wouldn't be blockchain-limited. They, they have a much bigger audience compared to if someone writes domain-specific language targeting EVM, that has a really narrow scope. So perhaps this this will open the door at that more... And, ev and even if you write a domain-specific language for WASM, for blockchain specifically, there are actually a lot of blockchains that are planning to use WebAssembly. So Dfinity is planning to use WebAssembly, Polkadot, Polkadot is WebAssembly, Ethereum shards will probably be WebAssembly. Even things that are totally different, like I think EOS is using WebAssembly yeah. as well. So yeah. 
I mean, the, the, yeah, the, there's some amount of like possible cooperation there, which is pretty exciting too. I actually think, at least at the moment, this this may change with time. Um, but I think these um, and these more traditional languages, uh, and including Rust in that at this point, uh, um, I think they will be really beneficial to to be used to write low level libraries and low level helpers in, in this context, uh, but leave the business logic and the high level decisions to a more domain specific language. So you could write a really optimized implementation of say a hashing function in one of those languages and, and have it audited and tested and verified uh, while leaving the high level logic to something which is more, more suited to ensure that the user doesn't make too many mistakes. I hope that that may be some, one of the futures uh, we may be looking at. Yeah, I think that seems the most likely as well. I mean, that, that sort of harks back as well to how Rust has gained a footing in the Ruby community, where a lot of people are writing Ruby, and then when they run into something that is that Ruby is just way too slow for, they write it in Rust and then use the FFI to bring it in. Yeah, I, I agree. It would probably be make mo- the most sense to see something similar for the blockchain. Thank you very much for joining this podcast. It was a super interesting talk, and uh, I uh, hope our listeners enjoyed it too. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much, Frederick. Great to be a part of it. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.